Hello, everyone, and welcome to this brand new episode of the Provcast. My name is Court, and I'm your host as always, and I'm one of the pastors here at Providence Community Church. Today's episode is a conversation with one of our elder candidates, David Lopez, who's a friend, and uh, he's also been a member at Providence Community Church for quite a long time. In this episode, we will be having more of a freewheeling discussion um, just about David and his life and really the call to uh, step up and be an elder here at Providence. And so we do this each time we have a new elder candidate that's introduced because we want to try and give them an opportunity to uh, talk on the Provcast and in the hopes that some of our members who might not run in the same circles as them just get a chance to get to know them a little bit. And so, David, welcome to the Provcast. Glad to be here. So tell the listeners a little bit about yourself. For those who may not know you, you know, you can go as far as you want. Where did you grow up? How'd you come to know Jesus? Things like that. Sure. Um, I guess we'll just jump right in. Uh, so I grew up here in uh, southeast Texas, uh, Lake Houston, Kingwood, Humble area. Uh, to be more specific, the backside of Kingwood back whenever it was just uh, trees and cow pastures <laughs> on the other side of Ford Road there. Um, I am one of my mother's children. I'm one of seven, and I'm one of, I guess, total one of uh, 12. I, I lose count. My dad, <laughs> my dad had a lot of kids. Um, so yeah, grew up in, grew up in the back, the backside of Kingwood. So I've lived here all my life. Um, when I got old enough, I stayed in the area. I moved to Humble. Um, so that's where I'm from. My dad is, uh, Did you go to Kingwood high school or. So I went to a lot of high schools. Oh, okay. But just all around here. Yeah. I went to, uh, I went to Kingwood high school for a bit, New Caney high school. I went to Humble high school. So kind of did a full tour. I like it. Just wanted to just, you know. Take a sampling of everything. I ended up graduating from Humble. All right. Is that so? That's what you claim. That's what I claim. Okay. You know, it's the last stop. You know, it makes the most sense. Okay. I don't go to any of the uh, high school reunions. So. That's okay. I, don't, I, don't, I haven't either just yet, but maybe maybe I'm going to make an appearance. Yeah, I don't. I'll I'll, I'll stay away. <laughs> <laughs> that wasn't high school. Wasn't one of those uh, experiences where. Uh, I really loved it anyway. But she's, not, she's not thriving in the high school scene. Wasn't so much. I yeah, I wasn't thriving. I was I was a bad student. I oh, got okay. into a lot of trouble. So, um, school's just not a thing. <laughs> wasn't really a thing for me to to to, to thrive in. I look just, back and reminisce about all the good times. <laughs> all, yeah, all the good times were not in the classroom. So. <laughs> I got you. Yeah. Um, my dad, uh, my dad is a immigrant from Mexico. He came here when he was, I think, seventeen years old. Joined the U.S. Army, did a couple, did two tours in Vietnam, and then spent the, the rest of his military career doing um, intelligence. And my mom is actually born in Iowa, uh, moved down here, I guess, in the early, late '80s. But her family is um, Argentine immigrants, so um, not a typical Southeast Texas background, but. That's kind of the context. She just got here as quick as she could. I got here whenever <laughs> the Lord appointed me to be here. And Texas is what I claim all day, every day. Yeah, there we go. It's where I want to be buried. <laughs> Agreed. Unless unless they force me out to the mountains, and since we don't have any here. That's <laughs> true. Well, you can go like go west a little bit, and there's hills. Yeah, there are they're nice hills. Yes. Yeah. I don't know if I can hide from the apocalypse in, in those hills. <laughs> I don't know. We'll yeah. try. We'll have to do it together, though. Yeah, I'm just going to go ahead and do a William Travis, draw my line, and here it is. Just <laughs> Alamo, Texas, right here in the Humble Kingwood area. Now you're speaking of my soul. Yes. But so the, um, I guess, get to the latter part of your question about sort of kind of the, how did I come to faith? Yeah. Um, so my, I grew up Catholic, 
my mom is my mom's family is very devout Catholic. They've been Catholic for a really long time. I think my grandfather's family can trace it all the way back to uh, they originally when before they got to Argentina migrated from Lebanon. So they were a part of the uh, Catholic Church in in Lebanon. I think it was the Maronite order. I'm not sure, but um, so just a very devout Catholic family. And so when my dad and my mother got together, they sort of agreed that I would take on her faith. He was a converted Jew. Um, so they, that's kind of where I was, well, that's how I was baptized. I went to Catholic schools. And so that's sort of the faith that was handed down to me is sort of the Catholic context. Um, so I, I grew up, you know, doing everything a regular Catholic does, go to mass, confession, all those things. And so my early conceptions of God were in the context of this very sort of magisterial sort of form of Christianity. So a lot, a high, a high degree of attention towards uh, God's glory, um, His Majesty, and so I always grew up knowing Jesus, Jesus Christ. Always professed Him Lord, right? So you don't you don't grow up Catholic and not right. Uh, but the every ever since a real young age, the one thing that always uh, stood in the back of my mind was sort of this Catholics, uh, because God is so other. In the presentation in the Catholicism, I always felt like there was a, this this uh, chasm between myself and God, and it was never quite approachable. So while I knew God, knew who He was, knew who Jesus Christ was, understood the gospel on a very surface level, um, it was not something that was ever like really innerly intimate, right? So I didn't have your typical, you know, when you grow up in like Southern evangelicalism. Uh, you have, you know, you have all those really beautiful stories of the kids kind of coming to Christ and loving Jesus, and that was sort of kind of a, a dry religion for me, anyway. Yeah. Um, as I got older, my my mom and my dad split up; they got a divorce, and my mother remarried a Baptist deacon, and so all of a sudden I was pulled out of Catholicism. And kind of shoved into the uh, sort of Baptist realm, which was very disorienting. Yeah, culture shock, <laughs> huge culture shock. I didn't, I didn't understand. I didn't. Well, to me, it was very disorderly, right? Because you go from being this high ordered, a lot of standing, a lot of kneeling, yeah, sign of the cross. There's a protocol before you go up to the Lord's Supper to uh, not ever doing the Lord's Supper except for like once every quarter. Yeah. and um, different songs. and But the one thing that sort of fixated me on, or I guess drew me in initially was the emphasis, which I'll forever be grateful for, on the gospel, right? On who Christ was, what he did, did for me, not just for the world or for the church, but it was sort of an individualized, uh, more of a relational lean. Um, and so that sort of was implanted in me. And that over a course of time that sort of just started to eat away at some of my conceptions of faith to begin with. Um, and as I kind of was going through that transition, um, trying to kind of break out of a Catholic mode of thinking, um, I was exposed more and more to just various different teachers. I would say that I probably didn't come to faith until I was, um, after my first daughter was born, my daughter Aubrey. Um, where everything kind of just, at that moment, 
sort of just God lit a fire. Yeah. And the fog of everything sort of started to kind of drift off. And so that that's um I I marked that time as whenever the faith actually became mine. And where I I actually professed and believed, you know, who Christ was, what he's done, and kind of believe the full fledged gospel. And from then on it was sort of a gasoline on a fire type deal. Yeah. Where I started mass consuming um, you know, the what the guys that were popular at the time were like Driscoll and Piper and Sproul and Sinclair, uh, was it Sinclair Ferguson? So how'd you get turned on to those guys? Because I, you <clears throat> originally were a part of a independent fundamental Baptist, right? I mean, how did you hear about, Yeah. you know, I mean, I guess you could technically say, all right, John Piper's one thing, but Mark Driscoll's got to be another. <laughs> yeah. So it's, it's an, it definitely is an interesting shift. Um, so, you know, kind of scrunched up in there is, story of my disenchantment with just Christianity in general. Um, going, coming from a Catholic faith, going into a Baptist faith, um, one of the things that you do lose when you make that sort of jump is that, so one of the things about Catholicism is they, they project this sort of authority and this in, institutional might, right? Um, a sense of order. And moving over into a more, you know, autonomous local church form of government, um, you, you're up and close personal with pastors and with people in a way that you're not in Catholicism, right? There's not any com- really any real communal life in the Catholic church. And so one of the things you start rubbing against is people are broken, right? Pastors are broken and there's a lot of sin and, um, there's a lot of sin in me. And so one of the things that starts question, you start questioning is like, I believe this, I believe the gospel or I believe the idea of the gospel at the time. But I don't know about this church thing. I don't know about if this is real. So one of the things you start to do is you start to kind of cherry pick the scriptures, what's true, what's not true. And that kind of sows more despair and more questions. And so there was a point where I sort of just got fed up with the answers that I was being given on particular questions. It didn't seem like if I had a question kind of trying to challenge my old faith, uh, the Catholic Church, um, I didn't get great answers from where I was at. and Even what, though you're having the objections internally. Didn't I was it? having the objections internally, but the way that I am is that I don't want to just know something's not true. I want to know why it's not true. Right. And I was not getting those answers, despite the best efforts of those, um, those around you. the people around me. And particularly in that context, uh, my pastor at the time was a uh, former pastor, uh, Mike Ivey. And... Um, he did his very best. You know, he wrote, I, I remember I had the questions about um, just the nature of salvation in general. And he would write up a little paper and give it to me and he did his best. Uh, but he, he didn't have like any seminarian training. Um, and for a while, those were satisfactory to me. But then then when you're a part of that world, <laughs> there's there's the, they go off on this uh, eschatology down the road, right? Yeah. So I had a lot of questions surrounding that and things that didn't make sense to me. One of the big things was, so when you're coming out of like a dispensational church, one of the emphasis is that like at the end times, the Holy Spirit's withdrawn and then nobody else can come to faith. And there were some contradictions about like there being saints after that period of time. And I know that may seem like a nuanced problem that I had, but I had a problem with it because 
the Holy Spirit, without the Holy Spirit, we're supposed we're not able to come to faith, right? So how were these people coming to faith? Was this an intellectual faith? What 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 is this? So I was asking like, what's the nature of faith? What is the nature of the Holy Spirit? And I wasn't really getting good answers. I was getting a lot of contradictory answers, and I realized that the people that I was talking to were not equipped to answer those questions for me. And then you pile on just the general kind of fallenness of the world and the church, and you start questioning whether what you're believing is even real. Is this, is this a coherent system of thought? And my conclusion at the time was, no, this isn't coherent. I like it, but it's not, is that good enough for me to stay a Christian? So I started looking, uh, and it took years. Um, it was a lot. It was thanks to a lot of two individuals in general. After I left that that context, um, that sort of helped keep me on track because I was on the edge of just departing the faith altogether. Because I just like, look, if this isn't coherent, if this isn't something that is reasonable, uh, then I don't know if I can put my faith in it. And so there was a man by the name Baird Sibley, um, who I who's he's gone on to be with the Lord now, but. Uh, passed away from cancer, but he was instrumental in sort of keeping the charity line of thought with me about, you know, understanding that Christ moves in broken people. God uses broken people. And so not to be discouraged by that. And just through various conversations with me, just he'd reach out to me privately. Uh, every time you'd see me at church, take time to talk with me and kind of just remind me of that constantly. Um, he, he has, or I'm sure now he knows, uh, just the impact that that had. It just sort of kept me close. And the other one was, I don't know, you may know him or not. Um, he's a worship pastor at Kingwood Bible Baptist now, Aaron Lybrand. Um, he also took time to invite me over to his house to watch football games and kind of the same line of questioning, just, just to keep me interested, so, kind of just to show me God's mercy and grace through people that kept me close with those those relationships. From there, that sort of set the foundation for me to be like, okay, I like these two men and I admire my former pastor. So maybe maybe it's not what it looks like. And well, so it's I, funny because your story has that coming from Catholicism into the, the Baptist realm and seeing, oh, something that was missing is the eminence of Christ. Yes. And then struggling though with some of these you know theological issues that aren't aren't adding up ends aren't meeting it's the enemy using that to kind of push you away and then it's the imminence of the body of christ a couple brothers who don't necessarily aren't necessarily pointing to answers they're just reaching out to you and and giving you the truths that we know you know hey God can draw straight lines with crooked sticks because that's the only kind of sticks he has to deal with amongst humans. Right. You know, it's it's just it's cool to see that the Lord was still. Yeah, he was still pre- he was still pressing me and keeping me, even though those men couldn't give me the direct answers. They were feeding a fire long enough for for it to stay lit, um, because that sort of that relational dynamic let me have trust in what I th- thought was just sort of a broken idea of church, the idea of community, just at the time just seemed really silly to me, annoying to me, really. Like I was going to church because that was sort of what I was expected to do. Um, But that kind of led, put down the foundation for me to be like, okay, well, if they don't have answers, then maybe maybe somebody does. And so thank God for the internet, right? (laughs) 
So you which, started, you got on Reddit. It probably Reddit was probably wasn't even. No, nah, Reddit wasn't around yeah. back then. <laughs> but YouTube was starting yeah. out. And one of the things that was on YouTube were, were Driscoll sermons. So I would just go in and I'd add, would type in my questions, you know, like questions, this and, you know, some kooky things popped up and I'd listen to them. And then, you know, you get a Driscoll sermon and you're like, okay. Not only did I like what he was, the answers he was giving me, but I also liked just the tone in general. Um, just the, the more masculine, tell it straight, tell you the truth type of. Um, yeah, me too. I mean, that's what drew me in with Driscoll too. So I, you know, my experience in the church was mostly that everybody seemed happy, even if I knew that maybe they weren't generally right. with life. Um, and then you get this guy who just was direct to you, kind of had a fatherly voice of like, no, like you're the problem. Right. You need to understand that you're, you're the problem, repent of sin, trust Christ, and that there was a way to be a young man. Right. And embrace masculinity in that way. Right. And still be honoring to God. In fact, that it was essential to do so. I, that's what drew me. Yeah. I, I like, I just liked that he was, that it seemed at least to me at the time that he was a straight shooter. And uh, whenever questions were hard, he would still answer them. And then he wasn't afraid to just kind of leave things up to, to mystery, uh, things that couldn't be just explained. And so, like, it's silly, but, you know, you I started to build a sort of trust in, like, what he was saying. And so whenever he would make reference, this is sort of the cascading effect, he'd make reference to, say, let's say, Piper. So I'd be like, well, I don't know who this John Piper is guy. Let me go ahead and look him up. Then you then you listen to a couple of John Piper sermons. And you're like, wow, this guy's got a got a gift. Well, it's kind of like the meeting of two worlds for you too, because you got John Piper, glory of God, right? You know, which is like speaking to your childhood, and, that, and then also he's a Baptist. Yeah, he, yeah, he's a Baptist, and it, what it really was his his high his high speaking of God's glory and Christ's sovereignty that captivated me. Because it was it was this highness that I that I wanted. Like I I like that about the Catholic Church that that God is holy, right? And um, imminent. That's something and, that you get from him. And he, that he's imminent. That that he that he is not only transcendent, but he, that he is also imminent. And so from there, I'm just gobbling up all the all the sermons I can find from John Piper, and he drops Jonathan Edwards, right? This is an old guy. At the time, I'm not like a huge reader, but I'm like, you know what? I'm gonna go ahead and read this Jonathan Edwards guy. Super hard to read. Yeah, dude's not gifted at writing, <laughs> but really impactful. So I'd gobble up everything that I could find at the time for free with Jonathan Edwards, which surprisingly was quite a bit. Um, and then, like going in through like forums and things like that, looking for other resources, I'd see guys talk about R.C. Sproul. And man, what what treasure that was for me! R.C. Sproul is like is is hugely responsible for. Um, helping me narrow my theological mind, like kind of bringing it all home, right? Because he's a very systematic teacher. Yeah, well, he studied philosophy, didn't he? Yes, he did. Yeah. And that also is something, even though it's not overt in your when you're being uh, brought up in Catholicism, but philosophy is, is sown all throughout Catholic teachings. And so a lot of things just started to sound similar. And so I'm like, okay, well, this guy's Protestant, and he kind of sounds like... Yeah, but there's a linear way in which right. R.C. Sproul walks through things, which I think tends toward his philosophical training. Yeah, I, I agree. Yeah, A connects to B, connects to C. Right. And, and he, you're like, oh, yes. He was connecting all the dots for me. Yeah. And, uh, you know, and if you've ever listened to R.C. Sproul, he'll, he'll name drop too. 
So it just started kind of cascading that way where the, the network of, of men that I admired were starting both alive and dead started to grow. And that sort of just started to feed this sort of um, zealous fire in me to continue to want to know more. And so from there, the, the, the kind of course that I took was upwards and onwards Yeah. when it came to, I just started to fall in love with theology. I started to fall in love with, with God and um, just incredibly thankful for those, those men um, that introduced me to sort of a, a more broader connected universal faith where I was starting to see God's hand and God's providence in churches, whether it be a Catholic church or whether it be a Protestant church, that his imminence was in the world and his divine providence was directing all things, even though to me as just a, a weak man at the time, um, disillusioned with things could start seeing that, no, I can very clearly see that. And that, uh, that connectedness, that, that sort of emphasis on divine providence helped me sort of re- look at my, my life and see all the ways that God was bringing me to this particular point. Yeah. And, and there's, there's, there's a lot, but you know, I, there are several times in my life where, you know, I was, I was very prone to despair and just feeling lost. And yeah, you mentioned that you pinpoint your first, your first child. Yes. You know, Aubrey and that moment, what, what it was, what was it about becoming a father, that season of your life that you feel like, okay, God brought this to a crux. Right. Because obviously, raised in the faith, Jesus is Lord, but this is a unique moment. Yep. You know, what is it about that? Yeah, so I got I got married in 2008 uh, to my wife, Angela. Um, Did y'all meet it? We met, we met, the, we met at that, that IFB right. church. So we, we met at that, that church. That's a church she grew up with. Um, Mike Ivey was, was her pastor for, I think, most of her life. Um, so, it was, so I met her there. And so she kind of took this journey with me a little bit. But we got married, and to say that I was unprepared for marriage is probably an understa- understatement. Um, How old were you when you got married? I was like two weeks from being 21. Okay, so pretty close to Morgan. I was 20, Morgan was 19, so yeah. I understand. Yeah, you're, you're, a, you're a boy in a man's body <laughs> trying, to fi- trying to figure it out. And, well, and, you ha- and when did you have Aubrey? I had Aubrey when I was 24. Okay. So it was... Four years later. So we went through four years of basically me trying to figure out how to do this. And since my my dad passed away in 2006, and he really wasn't that present for the latter part of my childhood, uh, I didn't really have a, a real male role model. Not that he would have been a good role model, <laughs> but I didn't really even have... Even present. Even present. So I was kind of trying to figure out at the time, like, what is it to be a man? Uh, what, is it, what is it to be a married man? And how to be a Christian man at the time, like my faith is still kind of loosely put together. I I can I can tell you the creed and things like that. And well, I you're could, starting to get some theological, right? Starting to get some theological building. God hasn't yet brought me to my knees yet, mm-hmm. um, but I'm I'm flailing the, that first four years. Um, I'm I'm not I'm not sure how to lead my my wife. I'm I'm harsh. I'm I'm all over the place. Like if you took that me in a room, you would agree that you probably should have waited and got married. <laughs> uh, unprepared in just pretty much every sphere of life. And so uh, struggling to, to keep work, 
you know, I, I was, I was very entrepreneurial minded. So I'd try to start a lot of ventures and those things all just kept on getting, uh, just snuffed out. And so I'm just down, I'm numb, I'm in despair. My wife's paying the price for that. Um, and it was when we had our first child that I started to realize that I'm responsible for another life. And the kind of the weight of being a father and what, do I, what kind of home do I want my, my daughter to grow up in? I didn't like the, the home that I grew up in. And I knew what it was like to have sort of an absentee dad. And that's not what I wanted. And so the, the sort of the social pressures of that packed within some convictions about where I want, what, what is the vision for my life, where I want to go, kind of had me kind of just at a point where I was like, I need something to change. I need something in me to change. Because it wasn't like at the time, you, I probably could have blamed a bunch of things. Right, I was dealt a poor hand, or um, yeah, I could just, I could blame my dad, yeah. <laughs> right? I could blame my mom or whatever. But at the at the core, I knew that something in me had to change because where where I was going and how I was going and the trajectory I was going was going to end in cataclysm, undoubtedly. And so it was that weight of Aubrey being born that kind of had my I guess my ears perked and my eyes open for something something different and I found that in the gospel just kind of an unadulterated pure gospel that Christ can transform me that he can cultivate me that he can change me and that to really believe that that is true and to cry out for that I remember I was just fired from one of my jobs Mm. and I was driving home and I just pulled over into a parking lot and I just wept I wept. I asked God that something in me has to change. I, Which for people who know, you're not a weepy guy. I'm not a weepy guy. <laughs> I'm not a weepy guy. But it got, it got to the point where I was like, I got to go home to my wife and tell her again that I lost another job. And I have a daughter. And I was like, I, something, something in me has to change on the material side. And something spiritually has to change because I'm, I'm numb. I'm, I'm, I'm numb. I feel nothing except for despair. And I don't know if it was at that moment or if it was a couple of days, but I, again, like I said earlier, it was like a fire was lit. Like I just had a perspective change. I didn't see the world the same. Uh, I can't explain it. I don't, I don't know how or why certain dots started to connect each other. But from there, I, I pledged my allegiance to Christ and it, by no means from that point forward did I not struggle with fog or anything like that. I, I still had my moments, but it was upwards uh, from that point. And like I said, I became all consumed with the gospel and wanted, that's what I wanted. I just, I don't know what, what way and how, but that is how, that's what I wanted. I wanted to know this more. I wanted to tell other people about it. I want to have my life shaped by it. And, um, I slowly but surely, by God's grace and providence, start that started to happen. You know, it's funny because your story, obviously I'm not going <clears> to <throat> retell mine. People have probably heard it a number of times, but obviously I, I came to Christ in my truck by myself too. <clears throat> obviously my father also passed away when I was younger, so yep. part of me, I think a, a very central part of coming to faith was realizing that in Christ 
God was my father. I had, I had yes. a father, and th- and that changed everything for me. But um, my brother was one of the first to come to know Christ. Uh, he was the first in my in my immediate family, and so I, I actually had some church experience. I went to a Christian yeah. school. Long story with that, but um, <laughs> but not always. Yeah, but but it wasn't until later that I had that moment that I, I pinpoint kind of like you. Even though I would have said, yeah, I probably would have said Christ is Lord too, even before my dad passed, mm-hmm. because I kind of grew up in a, a culturally Christian household, you know, maybe yeah. like Christmas and Easter. But my point is, there's something about, like the scriptural story of Jacob. He obviously is uh, knows the Lord, but there's something about the encounter he has before he goes and meets up with Esau. Yeah. Before he crosses the river. Yes, and you're like, okay, do, do you say that Jacob's not, obviously we're talking Old Testament here, but you know, if he's telling his testimony, as it were, right? You know, there's something about these moments that God providentially you know, you know, guides us and shepherds us to, where we have these moments of meeting that are unique. Mm-hmm. You know, it almost kind of reminds me of, are you really going to say Peter's not saved as he's a disciple, but something about when he met with Jesus on the shore after the resurrection right. changes Peter from terrified, running away, denying him to standing up in amongst his brothers at Pentecost. Those stories are like throughout the scriptures. <clears throat> and when I took my first youth pastor job, Morgan and I moved to Nederland, Texas, and we ended up not being there for long because of a theological issue, uh, which I, you know, I want to get into the details of. But one of the issues was, you know, the Holy Spirit, the role of the Holy Spirit, baptism of the Holy Spirit as a Subsequent, subsequent experience after conversion uh, versus are there continual fillings, which I, I, my experience was that there are continual fillings of the Spirit, that there are these moments where the Spirit, uh, for instance, Acts 2 happens and speak with other tongues, all those different things in you know, the Pentecostal church, which is just kind of a branch off that I was a youth pastor at, okay, believes that, uh, that that's, um, we're, all, we're all looking for that Pentecost experience. Sure. And my point was, well, what about Acts 4? Where the spirit falls on the same group, and they speak, preach the gospel boldly, earthquake in the in the house, and they're praying for boldness, and that seems to happen throughout the book of Acts. You know, there's these moments that are just unique, and you don't know how to explain them. Sometimes they're conversions; we pinpoint them as that. But I even think they they sometimes happen in our lives even after that. When we get to these moments, like you're describing, of despair, right, or lowness, that God's allowed us to feel this weight of our. You know, this gravity. I've talked with people who've been Christians for a long time. They get to a place, for instance, in their marriage or in their life, and they're just down. And maybe they're questioning their faith generally or something of that nature. And then God meets them in this unique way. And he can't explain that apart from like what you just said. Uh, there was a trajectory, even though you weren't perfect. Lots well, of spirits work. Right. You know, it's it's. I think there's something about these moments uh, in our life that... Sometimes Christians, it's a, it's almost as though we're only looking back at uh, a conversion moment. Like, well, that's over now. Now it's just kind of grinding it out. It's like, no, there's these, God is still doing these things in these moments in our lives. Uh, and I think they're significant. It's not, not every day's Pentecost, clearly. But that's I do true. think there's, yeah, clearly. Um, but there are these moments that are significant. I think they take, they take you, uh, your trajectory. And you, for instance, you just said like, falling in love with God. You know, like I love God. I love loving theology, loving God. These things are connected. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, 
And it's not like maybe you could have said, oh, of course I love God before that. But this is unique. It's different. And it's interesting you bring up Jacob because that's kind of the the story where he's he's uh, wrestling the theophany. Yes. Right. Is is uh, how I internalize what happened was this sort of wrestling with God. Um, that's why I, I I love the you know Psalm forty six, particularly the Shannon Shane version where, where that line where it says wrestle me and win, mm-hmm. um, because that that's what it was. It was a tussle, because it was there was a part of me that didn't want didn't want to hand over everything. Yes, but at the same time was like please crush me, right? Yeah, for him to win is is for him to affirm to you all these things that you're doubting about me, right? Or I I am that glorious God and like the way that he wins with Jacob, you know, he limps for the rest of his life. However, it's a new name. Yeah. You know, all the things that new name, new promises, all he needed. Yeah. It's like when God wins, we win. Right. Yeah. That's And that's, that's uh, pretty close to how I conceptualized that moment was a wrestling with God and a gladly, gladly limp from, from that. How did Angela, like, did she notice like a difference in you? It I would take some time, I'm sure. Yeah, she took some time, and of course, there's probably a little some side eye as well. Like, is this yeah, real? She's like, look at this guy. Right. He thinks he can come home crying. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if I came home crying. No, I know you probably didn't. <laughs> but uh, no, I, I would say that she she did over over the course of over course of time. I mean, obviously, our marriage got significantly better. Um, I mark it at that point. Maybe she has a different mark, but she's like, I'm still looking forward. <laughs> yeah, so I'm still <laughs> looking forward to this great marriage you're talking about. Um, but there are our marriage improved and our dynamic between me and her improved because and to to some point like it it's been god has been very gracious to us over the you know the last i don't, I don't know how many years don't get me don't get me in trouble Still don't even guess yeah, i'm not even going to guess uh but uh, you know since that time moving forward god has been very gracious to us to the point where we don't really even remember the first 4 years um, of our marriage, we don't remember the bad times, at least, and there were a lot of them. You know, me and me and her have talked before, and she's like, "I just completely blocked that out. I didn't even remember that," but I do, because um, it wears. Because even to this day, it wears on me. I'm, I'm ashamed, embarrassed, <laughs> embarrassed of some of the things that, some of the ways that I behaved and uh, approached just marriage in general. Um, so, th- incredibly thankful for that. I, I definitely think that she would affirm the trajectory upward. <laughs> Uh, from where we were before, uh, like I said, God has just been very gracious to us and have, has blessed us with, we had one and we had four more children and um, blessed work, blessed blessed our hands. Um, not to say that there weren't rough times. Uh, like, you, like you said, it wasn't, you know, wasn't without its peaks and valleys, but God definitely, his hand was definitely demonstrated in that. And we can thank no one else other than him because I can tell you that nothing it wasn't a moment where I was like, "All right, time to grow up, pull, my, pull myself up by my bootstraps, and just will myself to be better." That's definitely not the case. I could not have willed myself out of a wet paper bag. <laughs> at that point, it was uh, it was bad. Yeah, something about those moments. It's like it feels like you're in the worst place ever, and in, in one sense, yes. In another sense, it's the you know you're ripe for the harvest of God to be able to. Yeah. Okay. Now, now that you're you you sufficiently know. Right, that you're Here. not getting that. You know that's why I mentioned the Jacob story. It's like he's gonna have to meet Esau. His whole family's on the other side of the river by this point. Yeah, I'm gonna have to be wounded first. Yes, for me to be able to kind of take it all into perspective. Yes, and 
He did. He wounded me good. <laughs> <laughs> so obviously, you and your family come to Providence. <clears throat> you know, I guess it's maybe like a year and a half now, but it, but it was even before that. You know, you considering eldership ministry things like that. How did that come about? And obviously, there's a, there was always a um, as the Lord was drawing you to Himself, starts to bring a desire for knowing Him, theology, you know, reading the scriptures. But how did the idea of hey maybe I'll maybe God's calling me to this maybe God's calling me to, to shepherd to be an older candidate how did that come about? Yeah, so I've I've always had uh, ever since I was kind of put into a more like communal sense of church I've always had a I'll, I'll call it a, a very small burning desire to to teach um, even though I didn't know anything <laughs> right um, and so and and for a while that. Yeah, I was being pushed by my pastor at that IFB church. Like, oh, maybe consider the pastorate, even though I was not qualified at all at the time to even start considering those things. Um, but it was always something in the, in the back of my my mind, just because of the way my mind works. And um, I was just always, really, again, always really drawn to theological work, I guess. But at the time, not really ministerial, right? Not not the ministry side of it, more so the theological end. Um, and it was going, coming to Providence, what was it? And it's been probably been nine and a half years now that, um, I kind of got a glimpse of kind of the way that Providence does things, uh, with ministry that I started to have this sort of desire to, to be in ministry, uh, in some capacity or form. I never really quite knew what, what that was. I'd always reach for, reach for something, anything at that point, just wanting and desiring to be mentored or uh, shown like, okay, do you have gifts that qualify you for doing this? Uh, kind of to get assessed. But it was always there. It was kind of always just the, this, this nagging thing at the, the back of my mind where my passion was that I wanted others to come to the to saving knowledge in Jesus Christ, but also have their, their lives shaped and formed by the gospel in a way that, that mine had. Because again, I have a, I think I had a very profound shift that I just wanted other people to have. And so like just going through Providence, you know, becoming an apprentice and then going into the home group leadership back when, way back when. Yeah. Um, and getting an opportunity to sort of minister on that, on, on that scale people I just started the passion for wanting to do that just kind of continuously grew um, there was a, there was a time uh, that I thought okay well maybe the Lord hasn't called it to, called it to me called it for me so maybe just put it away um, but then uh, the pastor cohort got developed and <clears throat> it was extended the offer was extended is this something that you want maybe you want to want to do and at the time I wasn't really sure um, should I do this? Because at, at, at that time, there was, I had some theological variances that I thought, like, I don't know if it's going to be that helpful if, if I participated in that. But I was encouraged by Ty to, uh, to just go in open-minded, willing to be taught, to go through the process. And over that course of uh, that the year and a half, my, my passion and desire for wanting desiring eldership grew even more uh, probably to a more mature standpoint uh, than it had previously so it was just this this sort of that again with the theme of feeding that fire of the why 
Like, why do you want to do this? And I can just boil it down to, I want others to know Christ the way that I know Christ or better than I know Christ. And I believe that I have a skill set given to me by God to help do that work. Um, and not just on the theological end, like one of the things that really grew <clears throat> in me was this emphasis on the, the ministerial side of it, like the, the shepherding side, which I think before was, was probably grossly lacking <clears throat> from a theological end. I could come in and that's why you don't want to just teach everybody theology. Uh, knowing at the time that it wasn't going to fix any way fixing people, right? Even in my own life experience, I know that theology wasn't the thing that was that kept me close. It was those two men that yeah. kind of fed into my life that were ministering to me in that way. Uh, but over the course of the, I guess, the year prior to the cohort and during the cohort, this strong desire to want to shepherd people in an imminent way, right? To be present, to smell like sheep, to be among the sheep, um, almost... I will say it has now outweighed the sort of the theological emphasis that I that I have. I'm still theologically minded, and I love theology. But uh, whenever you're dealing one on one with people, when you're dealing with with people, uh, people don't always respond to theological instruction with the sort of heart change that you're you're trying to direct them towards, right? Yeah, <clears throat> a scripture that I often it'll just be mentioned whether in a meeting or sometimes if I'm preaching, I'll mention it off the cuff, but it's a, you know, in the Proverbs, one of the Proverbs is uh, where there are no oxen, the stalls are clean, but it's by the strength of the ox that the fields get plowed. Yeah. And you start to realize, I think over time, because what, what theology does, or at least what it has done for me in my life is it's an, it's innumerable to really, to really try to quantify it. But, you know, knowing God, allows you to have some tethers that you don't feel like you're just kind of out in the fray. Ephesians 4 talks about being tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine. You know, you start to know God and things start to settle into place. The glory of God increases uh, in your eyes. It's always been this glorious, but now your eyes are being opened to it. It's being magnified. It's just encouraging all of these things. And so I think as a, as a Christian, you start to, oh, I want people to see that, and, and that's exciting. But ultimately, when with ministry, what you realize is it, it forms... The stalls, because it keeps, like, what are the stalls? The stalls keep the the sheep in, keep them mm-hmm. protected. This is what theology does for us. Yes. It protects us from false teaching. It protects us from the enemy. It protects us from all the fiery darts of Satan. Um, but then you get oxen in the stalls. You know, you get the sheep in the stalls, and you realize, like, this is messy. This is, and you, and you realize, like, uh, a lot of times the stalls get beat up. They get, right. <laughs> they get broken up. People aren't, the sheep are not interested, including as we are sheep, you, when you start to see yourself, you're like, I'm not. It's kind of like, what's the video on the internet of that sheep that's stuck in the... Oh, yeah, the little rivet, yeah. <laughs> in the rivet, the guy pulls him out and immediately jumps back into it. <clears throat> but that's... The proverb is basically saying, like, that's the kingdom, that's the, the harvest being raped is is acknowledging that this, you're going to have to do a lot of cleaning in the stalls and the shepherding aspect of applying theology is is... A difficult work, but it's worthy work. Yes, absolutely. Because it's there that it's meant to be utilized. It's not just like in the classroom or in, in right. your, you know. Yeah, the way that I've conceptualized it and I've shared before is the the theology is sort of the bones of a house, right? It's the structure, right? But 
the experiential side of faith is is what makes it a home, right? It's the furnishing. It's the it's the it's the family pictures. It's the comfortable couch. All those things together are necessary to build a well-rounded faith. If you just build with the structure, right? Great, you have a you have a house, but you don't have a home. And so focusing on okay, well, now that the structure is built, how do you get people to want to stay in the, the house? Well, you have to make it home. And home is one-on-one. It's it's dirty. I mean, I, I know people listening, and myself included, when you go to your house and there's kids everywhere, it's a mess, right? But it's been lived in. And there's evidence of life, right? It's a thing that gives a thing life. A building by itself, it doesn't have any function. Um, it, like, there's a utility to it. But there is no like practical function to it if there's if it's not a home. It's not a place where people can, a family can dwell. That's what God is building for us, right? He's not just building just the structure. He's building a home for us to to set and dwell in and to commune with Him. And so that emphasis for me shifted in realizing that it's as important as the structures, and it is important. I don't want to I don't want to build on sandy ground, and I don't want to build a faulty home. That's integral. But when people move into that structure. It needs to be home. It needs to be a place where they feel safe. It needs to be a place where they feel heard. It needs to be a place where they feel loved, right? And you can't separate the two. The, together, they form the whole of the faith. So emphasis shifted more so towards the making things feel like home. Less. Right. Yeah, and I think that over time, the, the longer that you're a Christian, it kind of comes full circle with your story of like, yeah, you know, when you were coming out of the Catholic faith into the, you know, Baptist church and then kind of seeing like, there's a lot of brokenness here. It's a lot of, it's not that that goes away. No. You know, it's not like all of a sudden, no, uh, you know, kind of like the Scooby-Doo, you pull the mask off. You're like, they're actually all righteous. It's, no, that's <laughs> right. not true. Um, <laughs> no, that it God, part of the maturity is recognizing that this is, this is what we're going to be walking right. through in this fallen, fallen side of humanity. But there's redemption, you know, and the enemy, I think, uh, well, I don't think I know, is shading us from the redemptive that's happening in the kingdom and f- trying to focus our eyes on just the fallenness. Right. You know, so you look around at the church, you're like, oh, there's a bunch of hypocritical people in here. But rarely do we do we ask the question, well, do you look at the, your job the same way? Do you look at your grocery store the same way? It's like, no, because you kind of expect that. It's right. Like, well, why did you not expect it amongst the church? But then he he shades, I think, and I, I've even seen this in myself. And you could tell me if you if you've seen this too. But I would like for people to be encouraged to look at the redemption, and, and don't let the enemy blind you to all of that, all of the good that God is doing, because I think that the enemy is doing trying to do his best to blind you from that, so you can't see the glory of God as he is manifesting his good work in the lives of people around us all the time. Right. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. There is, particularly now, culturally, there's a strong emphasis on what's wrong, right? Yeah. It is the zeitgeist, I think. And I even have to guard myself from a little cynicism. It doesn't really matter what what side you're coming from on that. It's just, everything just seems so dark. Yeah, absolutely. It's, uh, you want to highlight all the L's and you want to ignore all the W's. Mm -hmm. But the W's are the very thing that, to allow you to continue to make the next step because you can see the redemptive work in it, right? There are going to be losses. There are going to be things that are broken. There are things that are not going to work the way they're supposed to. The, the, the standard is high, right? And it should be high. I don't think we should lower the standard at all. But 
when you take the standard and you and if you're only focusing on how you're not hitting it, you won't see all the work that's being done to try to move us towards the standard and that God is working and moving in those things and he's bringing life through those things. And th- those are the things to be like, look, we're, we're progressing and moving forward by the will and grace of God towards that end and that we know there's triumph. We know that God that he has already fought the war and he's already won it. We're we're involved in skirmishes, right? We're not like we're not in the on the front line. He already he's already there. He already dealt the death blow. Yeah. We're just carrying the battles and doing as he's asking us to do and he promises us, look, all this all this will amount to victory. All of this will will establish dominion. And to faithfully walk in those and to just concentrate on where you're winning. Where where we're thriving, and then yeah, you look at the L's, you don't ignore them, but you put them in context, right? Right. We do have the truth is the church has way more W's than it has L's. Yeah, and it's not even close. Well, and I think that's another reason why it's important to be attached to, uh, you know, why Hebrews eleven is such an encouraging chapter of of the scriptures because it's it's tying you to the ancestors of the faith and saying you have a great history of of you know, God's wins through people who are imperfect is a euphemism, you know, right. the broken people, but that all the wins that God has accomplished through these imperfect people. One thing I used to do, Morgan and I led home groups, and we've led some, we've led a lot, but one of the ways that I always used to start off was looking at the home group and saying, tell me any, any one good thing that happened this week. So, you know, a lot of times we do prayer requests. Yeah. And that's good. And they're usually but, on the negative side with it. But they, they have a lot of L's to them, right? Because yeah. it's, I'm praying that God turns this. Right. And it's human nature to see things that are not going well and you want them to go better. And you want the praise reports. Yeah, but I would say, tell me. And some, the reason I didn't say praise reports is because sometimes what people will think with that is I have to say something that spiritually oh, yeah. is yeah. good. And when people are in dark times... And I say, no, like, what does the book of James tell us? Every good and perfect gift comes down from the God, Father. Yeah. So one good thing that's happened in your life, and trying to create this culture of you have had a good thing that happened to you this week, and it's come from the Lord. And, okay, so there, so there are those things. Let's, you know, it almost, to me, it's almost Paul's encouragement of setting your eyes on things that are above and not below, like setting your eyes to the Lord right? and saying, okay, this is coming down to me in this mercy and this grace. So that the cult, the culture of the home group, but I even think about this in terms of families, um, you know, not just your home group, but, but your household, you know, do our, do our kids have that reminder that there's a lot of good, and you know where it came from? It came from the Lord. Yep. You know, like my, my, my son, which he actually does is better than I, like, it's wonderful to see the Lord working in him, but he, because we always will pray, he's a, he is, a, what's the word, like enamored by the weather. Right. Loves it when it thunders, lightnings, rain, stuff like that. So we've been in like a 45-day, yeah, 50-day, whatever. I want to say it's like 80 days at this yeah. point. Of barely getting in rain. But he'll pray for the rain. And we got like a little bit of rain. And he'll be like, Jesus helps me. Yeah, like he'll amen. tell me, Jesus brought the rain. And I'm like, yes. Yes. Like he's, he's seeing that. He is equating it to the Lord did that good thing. I'm like, of course he does, son. And he does that with little things. Like came out of his MMA class. You know, he... Struggles with attention. We prayed beforehand, and his coach came out and said he had a great time at MMA. And I was like, "Son, I'm so proud of you. you did such a great job." And he goes, "Jesus helps me." Amen. 
<laughs> like creating that culture though in the, in the church. Absolutely. And I, and I think that creating that culture to touch on a kind of broader issue with that is that, so right now they're, it's real popular to deconstruct, right? Yeah. And I think that the whole deconstruction movement stems out of the stems out of the cynicism that's born in trying to focus on like how we're not meeting the standard. But I think the the church's answer to that question is celebrate the W's, celebrate every W, not just the one that you want to dress up in spiritual language, but every win, and acknowledge, you know, that all good things flow from the Father, yes. and rejoicing in those things and. Not taking them as, not uh, belittling them as like, oh, you know, that's a normal thing. That No, it's not a normal thing. Yeah. Right? There's, there, are, there are people all over the planet that would love for that thing to happen to them. Yes. And they have their W's too, but like we, we are extraordinarily blessed, particularly in the country that we're in, despite all of, all of the, uh, the news and everything else impressed on us. The Lord has put us in a specific time and place, and he's just been gracious and merciful to us and shielded us from a, from what could be way worse. Yes, and I always think about, <clears throat> so one of the reasons I say this is, and I mentioned it earlier, what I'm talking about is not kind of the flowery pretend like nothing's wrong. No. I'm talking about like the Christian virtue of hope. Yes. And why does Paul continue to encourage the churches to embody Hopefulness, like he says, uh, whenever the brothers fall to sleep, and they, you, we, we grieve, but we don't grieve as those who have no hope. So he's talking about the ultimate worst things that could happen to us, losing loved ones. That we don't grieve, we grieve with hope. And I, I think the reason the reason that that's so important to me is um, leading leading teams, le- uh, doing ministry. A lot of times, I would say, well, the teams that work best are the teams that laugh together. I do premarital ca- counseling with couples. I always say. Couples that laugh together stay together usually. Um, now, obviously, couples that pray together, you didn't go through sure. a lot of different things. But why the joy? Because you can be at really difficult times, but the moment you start to, it's it's all, there's no laughter, there's no hopefulness, there's no looking for the things that are good. Right. Um, that That's the cynicism of, we are, all, we are, Christians are not merely living in a fallen world. They have a redemptive message that's their own, their own story. And a restorative promise that is certain. Right. God's kingdom peers out through all all the all the cracks, right? So that for the world to be able to see that there's life there in the in the Christian community, in the Christian life. So yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, I think about it sometimes because I mean, people that are around me, I want to joke all the time. You know, I'm just having fun. But I thought about the other day about like after getting done with the preaching and. So you're preaching really serious things, true things, and then I look out and we're laughing, having a good time after after service, after gathering, and I'm like, "This is good. This is not like in, inverted in any way. It's that, like you said, the even in the woundedness, we can have joy. Right? You know, these things should always be a part. Like we should be able to celebrate as well as as mourn. You know, we fast as well as feast. Right? This is this is how the church is meant to be. In light of that, okay, I don't even know how long we've been going now, but I, I wanted to ask you, okay, good. I have a little bit of time. Obviously, you, you lead men's ministry alongside Eric and help out with that. But I, what I wanted to ask you before we get done is, what are you excited about for the future of the church, for the future of Providence? Maybe it's men's ministry oriented, I don't know, but when you're looking out, because I do think 
when you look at, at things culturally, there seems to be a, a massive barrage of gloom. Mm-hmm. Like the zeitgeist is cynicism. The zeitgeist is dark. Yeah, it's despair. But what about the church, you know? And I, I, particularly for Providence, like what excites you about the future? Because I, I would like to leave everybody who's listening with, at least from your perspective, and maybe I'll throw in too, you know, how should the church be looking fo- looking forward to God is still at work? Yeah. And and maybe more so than we could ever imagine, you know. Right. So my I have my uh philosophy of ministry is a sort of theological cultural maximalism. And what I mean by what that, do you mean by that? Yeah. What I mean by that is that um that that the Christian faith is something that touches every sphere of life. Right, it's not it's not tucked away in this sort of um, private spiritual sector. I think that the church for a long time, particularly in evangelicalism over the last I don't know thirty forty years maybe, um, has tended towards a, a kind of a really sort of a gnostic separated view of Christianity where it's like only if somebody part- doesn't know gnostic to explain. Yeah, it. so it's a, I mean it's an ancient heresy where essentially it's this um, throwing away of the material in favor of the higher spiritual to kind of just put it very plainly. And, and, and the reason it's that that's easy to fall into is because we do see things in the scriptures. Like we want to uh, crucify the flesh, right? We want to, like Paul talks about the battle between the flesh and the spirit. So sometimes, you know, you say something like Gnostic, people, I'm not that, but it can, it can morph. Yeah. It can creep. And what I mean by that specifically, with the evangelical church is that there, there's a tendency amongst the, the, the people of God, in our age, to only baptize a portion of their life, right? Um, they keep church at church, right? And then they live the rest of their lives, and it's sort of this unbaptized realm of existence. Right, so you got your church life, which is sanctified, it's right. set apart. Right. But then and the rest of your life is unsanctified, kind of just, yeah. it is what it is. It is what it is. You don't necessarily think about think of it in theological terms. You don't think of uh, work, family, um, politics, uh, communal life. You don't think of those things in theological terms. And so what I mean by cultural maximalism is that the Christian faith penetrates all those things. And to borrow from Abraham Kuyper, um, he had a saying, I can't, don't, can't remember exactly what it says, but it, it is that you know Christ looks over all creation and declares every square inch his. So all things, God, Christ cares about our politics, cares about our families, cares about our jobs, cares about our communal life, cares about the, our hobbies, that Christ has blood-bought all of those things, and those are his, and they belong to him. And so uh, having a faith that penetrates all of those things is of the highest order. Not, not One, to the mission of the church to make the gospel unignorable in our city, Right. That, that plays into it. Like, how do you make it not ignorable? Well, you're present in every sphere, and every, every sphere that you're involved in is, is saturated in the Christian faith. It's saturated in the gospel. And so I bring that up to say, like, what excites me about Providence is because I think that Providence, Providence's mission lines up well with this sort of cultural, theological maximalism, this penetrative emphasis on all of life. It's not, we're not satisfied with simply just having... Uh, you know, come to church on Sunday, and it was a good word, and maybe I'll, maybe I'll remember it whenever I'm frustrated at work. But it's this sort of desire to capture all of it. Like we want to declare Christ's dominion over every sphere, not just this one sphere. No sphere gets to be unbaptized. We baptize all of it. And so this emphasis that Providence has had has set it on a sort of trajectory to do a lot of 
really good work in the community and amongst the people of God. And what we have this building that's coming up, right? That's going to open up so many different avenues for ministry um, and kind of really set the stage for us being able to expand sort of that vision, right? You have Providence Road Academy um, that's getting built out to kind of facilitate sort of this wider scope vision of what it is, what it is it means to be a Christian. So what I'm excited about is that Providence is deeply invested in cultivating and equipping the saints to be the salt and light in the world in a way that I think holds it in distinction from a lot of other churches where they have a more program-oriented bring them in, and that, that, again, this is not a knock on them. Bring them in, you have them there for, you know, whatever club, and then you kind of treat it as this glorified clubhouse, right? And the way that you minister to people is you just bring them in, right? And that's not bad, right? We, we, we want to bring people into the house of God, but also we have to remember that the church is not just a building. The, the church is also the people of God, and that we go out and we saturate the soil, and it's tilled, and it's fertile ground for, for growth, <coughs> yeah, well, I think about, okay, so something for a long time, um, I, I would, I, I think I've probably even said this maybe in sermons or, or mentioned it in, in podcasts before, but some, some semblance of it, I can't remember if this is maybe Tim Keller or, I can't remember who said this, but some semblance of as the culture becomes post-Christian, it permits, uh, it, it's a, it's going to marginalize Christianity, and then, it, you know, when Christianity is at the margins, it does its best. And I used to say that. I don't, I think there's a, t- a turn to that that's happened in me, which I'm like, I don't want that to happen, first of all. Yeah. Because I think that what you just said is, if Christ has died and, and blood bought the nations, and then said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given unto me, now go to all the nations and say, mine, mm-hmm. these are Christ, which I think 100%, then... I don't. I don't want Christianity to be pushed to the margins. I think Christianity at the center of all all nations, all tribes, all tongues is the vision of Revelation. So, but I but I do understand one element of what whether the system killer or not. I, I hope I'm not misspeaking. I think he said something along those lines, though. One one thing I agree with is I do think that the spiritual zeitgeist we're talking about of cynicism, and you're starting to see this. I think people are hungry for for a message that says Christ is Lord of all. Yes. And it isn't just uh, the things that you just mentioned. It isn't just I've baptized my church life and then everything else I'm just trying to work it out. No. I think that the stage is actually being set in a way as the lines are being drawn more clearly about human sexuality. Right. Family. Gender. Gender roles. You know, those kind of things how how those things are how those things are being lined up by the culture of secularism versus how the scriptures speak to them where I, whereas i feel like growing up in the church we still had a baseline of uh christian culture that undergirded right everything yeah. everything as those things start to fray the pillar and buttress of truth of the gospel shines brightly and in that sense i think praise be to god that we have this opportunity you know um even though we don't praise God for drag queen story hour, you know, you don't right. pra- praise God because you see uh, genital mutilation. You don't, you don't praise God for those. That's sad, and it should break our hearts. However, I think as young people are growing up, you know, even as we're right here, you know, the students are meeting, you know, just in the other room. 
And I'm thinking, I think that generation is hungry to hear. Not that Christ is indifferent to that. Right. Christ doesn't have anything to say. No. That it's his. That it's his. Yeah. And and that by by saying that, we're not saying that he here he is here to squelch all of that. No, he is here to lead you into all joy in himself. Right. That that um the standard is there to be loved and enjoyed in Christ Jesus. Right. Like, you know, teaching our children that that no, this is this is real joy. Having a family, having right, you know, ha- being being married and, and and investing yourself into the wife or husband of your youth. These things are joyful things, and the church is a place to rejoice. And this, I think, we're set up for that. I agree, and, and that encourages me. So it's it's not that I, I don't I don't agree that I want Christianity to be pushed to the margins. I think as the lines are drawn, and darkness and light is seen more clearly. Clearly, yeah, the light will shine. Yeah. I think that. You know, uh, yes, we don't want to see Christianity pushed to the margin. I know that some people like rejoice in that because it's like, oh, the Lord's pruning, <laughs> the Lord's pruning, and we're going to know what. Which, the, okay, he, he is. Yes, uh, the, the reality is that Christianity is being pushed to the margins, right? So we can either look at this as a a great falling away, which in some respects it is, or we can also look at it as a great opportunity to do some work on the outside of the house, right? To do to to kind of refortify things that have been forgotten, to reemphasize things that because of just the waves of the age and the cultures, and the way things shift and move, that there's areas of attention that have long been ignored or taken for granted, uh, that all that needed some adjusting themselves. This is an opportunity for us to be able to fine tune those things and present a truth about those things and present the world with, look, you've been ragging on you know, air quotes, Christianity for failing in all these ways. Well, let, let us show you what true Christianity is and what has been missing is not that you didn't have any more of these other freedoms or things that you're wanting to push into, into the church. Now it's that the, the church has in some regards taken too many steps backwards and trying to protect just the Sunday. Right. But Rather, now we can advance forward in dominion and demonstrate through our lives, right, to be salt and light in the various spheres that God has called us to, all the different fields he's called us to tend. Not in some sort of grand scheme to take back the culture, right? Not, that, not in a culture war sense, but taking control of the things which God has given us to, to have control over. In our own sphere, in our own, in our own way, with, with the fields that God has given us, we plow those fields. Well, it brings back a what what I think the Bible gives from Genesis to Revelation, which is there is not a neutral playing ground right. on the earth. So this idea that it's like, well, you know, you leave your religion outside and we'll just play neutrally. No, everybody's coming with their faith. Right. Even if that faith be in the God of secularism. Right. And so once you once you're able to see that and see that no, the, the like the enemy's great scheme is to make you think that when you're playing on his ground, it's neutral. Right. And only whenever you come and say, no, we're going to bring the gospel into it, that's the unfair. No, no, no. There's Christ Mm -hmm. who claims lordship over all, and then there's all the others. And so once you realize that, and the way that I I think the most convincing question that was posed, I can't remember if this was posed to me personally, but is it a better scenario for there to be a Christian culture or a non-Christian culture? Yeah, seems like a really easy answer. Like, well, yeah, as a Christian, like, well, of course, a Christian culture is like, okay, so would you rather have a Christian principal at your kid's school or a non-Christian principal? 
Like, well, we all say we all say Christian. But then there's these areas of our lives where we're like, no, no, we don't want to bring Christianity into that. I think that this is a unique moment where God is waking up the church to say, no, boldness is good. Yes. And it's not not arrogance, but boldness to say, no, where Christ is Lord, it's good. Yes. And the, real, the reality is that you can either bend your knee to many masters or you can bend your knee to the one master. It, that's the only choices on the table. You, you will bend the knee. But who you bend your knee to is is a matter of life and death and eternal consequences. Yes, and the and the the fruit keeps coming right. either way. Either way, you're you're either going to reap what you sow on their terms, or you're going to reap this reap what you sow on God's terms. And I don't know about you, <laughs> but <laughs> I'm I'm gonna go I'm gonna go with the winning team. <laughs> winning team here. And and I and I feel like that's something that excites me in a way. Yes, with um you know. Starting out doing student ministry for a really long time, planting Providence. Now we're well into past a decade of of planting. Um, looking at this generation that's coming up, I have excitement about it. Of our children having an opportunity to be faithful to the Lord, to live their lives faithful to Jesus, and um, there's a fear that comes along with that too. Sure. I think that's even what you're mentioning earlier about like you know when you hold your daughter for the first time, I'm responsible. And I think that there's a part of that that's that's holy, like the gravity. But I think I want to end by saying, you know, we have a lot of people that are listening that have kids. Don't fall into the fear that cripples you. But remember that in the same way that the Hebrews 11 saints of old were children at one point. Yes. That God raised them up to do great and mighty things. And we should be excited about that and what part that we have to play in that, as well as fighting the battles that God would have us fight today exactly. and seeing the wins and, and mourning the losses well with hope. But I, but I don't want to succumb to looking at our, our children saying, oh man, it's so bad. Because I feel like almost that's being, that's being teed up for the church. Be terrified. It's all coming down. And I almost kind of want to remind the church, like, no, let's have like the... Is it Joab along with his brothers that says they're about to fight this battle and it looks like they're all surrounded on every side? And he yeah. has this line where, um, let us fight for our God and for the cities of our God and may the Lord do what seems good to him. Yes. But that sem- that semblance of like, no, God God is good. Let's like put our hands to the plow. Yep. God's going to win the victory. Yeah, defend and build. Yes. Defend and that's and what excites me. Yeah. I, that, yeah. That, uh, just that whole, just the... That trajectory I see very clearly laid out, and just all the things that are coming kind of down, down the pipe for for Providence. Um, the, the Lord seemingly has situated us as in a in a perfect place to really dig our dig dig our feet into the ground and pull the shovels out and really get to work to that end. And like you said, we have tons of tons of kids. I was looking at the membership or the people of Providence and how many kids there are and teenagers in the age group kind of break out. Ty had sent me that, and I was like, "Wow, that's a lot. Of, that's a lot of opportunity yeah. to reframe things, to reframe the trajectory, at least for those who God has entrusted us with, right? And that's all we can do, right? We can't, I can't change what's going on in Washington D.C. or the Richmond, north of Richmond, <laughs> but I, I can have an impact by God's help and mercy on those who He has entrusted." to the care of the, the, this, this particular church and the community that we've been placed in. For that, I am, one, profoundly grateful, and two, very excited to see, because I know that God God is going to do some things. God is going to work in this church towards those ends. 
And I'm doing the fellowship program last year, even right before we started this recording, having some of the, the kids were in here, some of the leaders were in here. Man, it's it's great seeing like they have just joy, life. They're fun to be around. I, I could tell that they love the Lord. I mean, while we were recording, I was listening to them worship. You know, that excites me. Yeah. It just brings me so much like joy and hope. And I would I would encourage anybody that's listening to, you know, talk to some of these young people. You Absolutely. Know, and and uh and enjoy whenever we're after a gathering on a Sunday watching our kids, you know, running Run around. around and, and like animals. Know, act, yeah, acting crazy. <laughs> My son's got his Heelys on, you know, looking to yeah, roll. I've seen him cruising around all that. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm just looking it's bringing me that brings me a lot of joy. Yeah. You know, so as much as you have the and responsibility, good. Gravity of the, our responsibility, good. But the fear, this fear should not be ours. No, yeah. You know, we should fear the Lord and trust him and have a lot of hope. Yeah, the fear is the thing that the enemy tries to use to paralyze you from any action. And I learned that early on in my life, that you can overthink things. Yes. To the point of where you're just cutting off your legs from doing anything. Yes, and I think that same paralyzation then gets passed down to our kids. Absolutely. Because they can't make mistakes. They can't... Cause you know, then something terrible is going to happen. And I see myself fearing that. I don't want to put that uh, perfectionism onto my children, but to tell them there's a delight in God and, and being obedient to God, and there's grace yeah. the, and the mercy. Life is way too short to live in fear, and the, the faith far too rewarding and glorious for us to be paralyzed by the same. Absolutely. Well, we've gone for about a little over an hour, so I want to say thanks for joining me. Yeah, no problem. It's been fun, man. Um, I hope everyone who got a chance to listen with us enjoys this and uh, has gotten to know David a little bit better. If you're a member at Providence, I want to encourage you, uh, look for David on a Sunday morning, introduce yourself uh, if you get the chance, and uh, get to know him some more. So thanks for listening to this episode of the Provcast. If you are interested in more information about Providence, in case you're not a member or you haven't been, you could check out our website at ProvidenceTX.org. And you can also subscribe to our podcast, I think, on iTunes and a number of places. You can get all of our uh, episodes that we put on here, which aren't just elder interviews or candidate interviews. There's just various topics. We also have uh, Sunday sermons that are uploaded. They get uploaded to your device. If you want to visit us on a Sunday morning, we have a 9 a.m. gathering and a 1045 a.m. gathering every week. We'd love to have you. But until next time, uh, be sure to share the love of God that's been shown to you. And we thank you for listening. <laughs>